queer relationships, an IM clinic podcast devoted to helping you, the LGBTQ plus community, create the love lives and relationships you crave. When her camera turns on, I can see the California sun peering through a window in the background. Her warm, familiar voice seems more familiar than the sunshine, although her hair's a little longer than I'm used to. But her warm countenance is still the same. I've met Dr. Lynn Fraser several times over the last decade. She teaches me how to be a better clinician for trans folks. But in our conversation today, she also somehow reminds me of the work that still needs to be done and reinvigorates me with passion to keep on going. Picture this. One woman walked into Dr. Fraser's office nearly 35 years ago and changed the way the world would understand trans folks. After working with WPATH, the department that writes the standards of care for mental health practitioners working with trans folks and training numerous therapists throughout her career, people like Dr. Fraser leave me hoping to do more and be more. I'm sure you will find her story and her wisdom exemplary. Let's take a listen. I thought today we would um, almost kind of have a conversation just like this in terms of um, your career um, and what it's meant for you to kind of walk alongside and in many ways pave way for the trans community, um, at least in terms of WPATH and the psychological community. What was it like uh, being a female kind of in a male's world getting your doctorate? How was that experience for you? That's an interesting question. Um, in this field, which I got, I got a doctorate in counseling psychology at University of San Francisco, which is a Jesuit university here. In, I'm in, I'm in San Francisco, and I didn't notice any issue at all in terms of gender, what I was concerned about was what I was writing my dissertation on at a Catholic university, because my dissertation was on counseling. We called people transsexuals back then, Mm -hmm. and it was about counseling transsexuals. And I was worried that the university would have difficulty with that topic my advisor was a very liberal man who was also, he was a behaviorist though, and I was a Jungian. So I had to think about how to write a dissertation that would combine my way of thinking clinically as well as his, and he taught me a lot. So it was a combination of Jungian and behavioral theory and therapy working with transsexuals. But getting a doctorate, I live in San Francisco, and the field is very open to all kinds of people, and diversity is extremely important, even back then when I got my doctorate. So there was a consciousness about gender, but the consciousness was in a healthy way. 
not an unhealthy way. I don't know if there's anything else you want me to say about that because it was not really an issue. Mm-hmm. That's great. Uh, was, yeah, yeah. And in our field, I don't know if you find this, but I find that many people prefer seeing a therapist who's um, not just assigned female at birth because many um, trans people are, in again, in my field, I mean, many people want to see trans people and they want to see therapists who are non-binary, see um, a variety of types of people. But early on when I was first in <clears throat> doing the work, people tended to prefer seeing a woman and they wanted to see a cisgender woman. And I'm talking about back in the day when I started working with trans people, there was so much transphobia that as a cisgender person, I, there was a strong preference to see me rather than to see my colleagues mm-hmm. who were trans. That's definitely changed now. And I'm really happy about that. Mm-hmm. That there's not so much transphobia. I don't know if I'm answering your question because I'm kind of going all over about what great. it was like back then and, and what it's like now. Mm-hmm. What were you writing your dissertation on? Or what was it? So what I was, it, I was in the Department of Education. So I needed to write something that was related to education, even though the degree was in counseling psychology in the Department of Education. So I wrote it on, uh, I can't remember the title exactly, which tells you how long ago it was, but it was something about understanding and treating. No, it was assessment and management of, and this is what it was entitled back then, gender identity disorders. Mm. in uh, adult male now mm-hmm. but now we certainly would never have a title like that because trans people are not disordered mm-hmm. it would be called gender dysphoria and it but again it was it's it was basically a training manual for therapists for counselors in working with trans people so that to me just sounds yeah, that sounds so avant-garde for the time. Is that accurate to say? That's what the concern was, that maybe the university wouldn't accept it. Mm-hmm. And, um, but the, the university was fine because, again, it was a Catholic university, a Jesuit university. But mm-hmm. there, there, there was no problem. There was just an initial concern by my advisor when we were talking about what I was going to do my dissertation on. But he went and talked to some people about it, and they were fine with it. But, yes, it was, wow. it was certainly one of the first dissertations written on the topic. Mm-hmm. I can imagine. Yeah. What what kind of um, inspired the passion for that? I mean, you have to feel very passionate about a dissertation that you're <laughs> planning to write. <laughs> Otherwise, it feels like a death sentence, I would imagine. So what happened for me is that I took a number of years between getting my master's and getting licensed and then going back and getting a dissertation. So by the time I was writing my dissertation and going for a doctorate, I was already in practice and I already had a full practice of trans people. So it's more what inspired me 
to see trans people in the first place. Because once okay. I was in practice, in, there was no question that I was going to write my dissertation on what I was doing in terms of my work. But it was in my master's degree. And when I first started, as we all have done, we all had to go and work somewhere and start seeing clients. And I worked at, I found myself at a clinic that was very avant-garde in the Mission District of San Francisco. And people just came in off the street, many of whom were um, homeless and had you know, resource poor people. And the person that I saw, my very first person, and I really didn't know much of anything because I'd never seen a client and I was a young master's student and uh, taking doing my internship and she was a trans woman. And I knew nothing about being trans and she and I hit it off just as human beings. And she, she was pretty insistent that she wanted to work with me because I told her that I really wasn't able to help her because I really knew nothing about her situation. And with the permission of my supervisor in my master's program and uh, the head of the institution where I was working, as long as I made sure that I recorded every session and then in a group of fellow counselors, we went over everything that was said, I was given permission to work with her. And it was also back in the day when we were allowed to socialize with our clients. In fact, at the place where I worked, it was a... Um, the kind of place that we, that are the people who came in, we called them guests. And so I, she took me all over the Bay Area and taught me so much. Because in the literature, anything in the literature back then, this was in 1972, so it was almost 50 years ago. Um, she, well, all the literature that was, it, that existed was completely pathologizing. But yet I had a human being in front of me and I could tell that this human being didn't fit the descriptions that were in the literature. And um, so that's how it started. She taught me and nowadays, of course, we don't want our clients to teach us about trans issues. It's our responsibility to learn ourselves. But there was no place for me to go and she was happy to teach me. And her issue was not about gender per se, it was about anger, which as it turns out was related to how she had been stigmatized. But be that as it may, that wasn't her, it, she wasn't coming to get surgery. Um, so that's what how it started. And once she knew that I was a person that she could work with and that I, from her perspective, I was respectful of her life experience. I had a full practice of trans people because she told all her friends. And then there was a clinic at Stanford and they heard about me and the clinic at Stanford, they were, they did surgeries. Um, they started referring all their people to me and it, it just mushroomed. 
Mm-hmm. And then I went into private, pra- I got a license, went into private practice and then decided to go back and get a doctorate because I wanted to do, do uh, understand anyway, more about research mm-hmm. and the, in a doctoral program that you learn more about research than I had. And plus I wanted to learn more. So I went back and then I did the dissertation. But mm-hmm. as it turned out, mm-hmm. I mean, my committee, none of them really knew anything about the topic. So they were just interested that I would be able to write a dissertation that made sense because they said, that we can't tell you if it's right or wrong, mm-hmm. you know, more than we do. Because I did at that point. And then from there, I got involved. Well, even before that, I had gotten involved in an organization that it's the World Professional Association for Transgender Health. And I've been involved with that organization ever since. Mm-hmm. So, um, and continue to see many trans people. And the, the field has changed dramatically since when I started. But the people, by the way, who work in the field haven't changed. Same type of people, they're just a lot, a lot more of us. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm almost thinking of this this mushrooming effect of your practice, but also this mushrooming that's happening because of one person's courage to find a therapist for help, that her life inspired you to help so many others and to have you as such a a force in the trans community, working so hard to make sure that we know how to work with them at our best. I mean, her silver lining here, but her anger has been a gift to the trans community globally through your work. What a wonderful way to think of it because she was courageous. She came off the street and came into our clinic and wanted to work on her anger and then taught me and then referred. I mean, there was a big community in San Francisco at the time. Mm-hmm. I, and it was through her that she started referring people because most of them would not see a, a therapist. Mm-hmm. Other than, of course, many even back then needed medical intervention, needed surgery, needed hormones. Um, So they did see providers that way. And there was an underground of providers and not so much an underground too. There were, there were some, there were many reputable people working in the field back then in terms of providing hormones and surgery, but there were people who were not, Mm -hmm. there were people who were reputable and I was very aware of that Mm -hmm. but your point about how the community how the community back then was everybody knew each other and of course there was no internet but people knew each other Mm -hmm. and talked to each other but not enough because there was no way to Mm -hmm. sure But I like that idea that what you said about how the community 
Well, I can't remember. How did you word it? I mean, it, the mushrooming effect that you talked about. Starting yeah, that, with, I mean, it wasn't just one person, obviously, but sure. in my mm-hmm. life, this yeah. one person impacted mm-hmm. me in such a profound way. And yeah, I, I, I. Yeah, go ahead. It just almost seems so serendipitous in a way, or maybe even providential <laughs> uh, to. Oh, to see, yeah, to see this person coming off the street and then to mm-hmm. take you into her world. And yes. then for you to come back and say, this is the world that I'm going to hang out in and specialize in yeah. and fight for. Right. I mean, yeah. again, her anger was a blessing to, I, I think, probably more trans clients than we can ever count. All the people who've read your work through WPATH other therapists who've been trained under the under the work that you've created for us. I mean, it's it's incredible what she started. The two of you created. Well, I don't. I mean, you're you're exaggerating a little bit. I <laughs> there were quite a few of us. Not sure. Uh-huh. What happened way back then? There was a there was a small group of providers who did not believe what we read. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the literature sure. and there was and what we believed and it started in ni- the organization started in 1979 and the ni- and the standards of care were written in 1979 but we believed what we heard our clients saying and there was a remarkable man named Harry Benjamin who wrote the book the transsexual phenomenon where he insisted that many people needed medical interventions, hormone and surgery to reduce their gender dysphoria. And we called it gender dysphoria way back then. And that group of people were saying that the problem was not a psychological problem whereas the literature was saying it was a psychological problem and the treatment was psychotherapy only. And this small group was saying, no, we can help people with medical interventions to match their minds to their bodies. And and in the sense that their bodies would be changed. Mm Because this reminds gender, me. Yeah, go ahead. Um, yeah, this reminds me of a, a time I was an adjunct professor, and mm-hmm. um, one of my students. We were talking about transitioning for trans clients, and uh, this Christian student, kind of in his uh, way of defending his 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 values, said, "Well, do we change the soul to match the body, or do we change the body to match the soul?" And he yeah. kind of caught himself off guard. And I think in that moment, yeah. he realized that yeah. as a as a Christian, he would rather change the body so it matched the soul. And I think that was a really moment for him. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, that's nice. Were you there? I was the professor. Like, yeah. And he, he was oh, asking the me the question. Like, yeah. mm-hmm. Oh, How did you handle What did you say? I, <laughs> I remember yeah. very distinctly not saying anything and looking at him like, 
yet you just stumbled upon the truth. And he kind of leaned back in his chair and his eyes got really wide and you could tell he had just had this epiphany. Um, And I I just kind of left it at that and moved on. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. That, that was a profound moment when he got it. For sure. And of course, there's such variation. It's a gender spectrum or a gender universe. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so many ways of being a gendered person. And the community, it, it used to be that we believed that it was a gender binary. And one was either male or female, masculine, feminine. Um, mm-hmm. And that people would go through what we would call a full transition from one gender to another. But now we know that's not the case for everybody. It's the case for some people. So that our, our goal as clinicians is, one, to help people articulate who they are from a gendered perspective to help them reduce the dysphoria is like, for example, once you know who you are, then what are you going to do about it? And how can I as a clinician help you be the person that you experience yourself to be from a a gendered perspective? And there are all kinds of ways to do that. Whereas, like I say, back in the day, there was just one pathway, and that was moving from one gender to another, full transition. That's changed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's really fun to see people navigate the spectrum of gender identity, to see some of my clients um, finding words that really help them feel alive in their own body. Um, yeah. from from full dosing of HRT to microdosing. Um, mm-hmm. I, I bring this up almost as a segue because there was something you taught me way a long time ago. It had to have been 2011. Um, I wow. was asking you about a particular client and you said, Isaac, I want you to leave every option on the table for yeah. all of your clients. Yeah. And yeah. I use that, I hear your voice in my head almost every day saying, (laughs) what is every option that this client has access to according to the way they're finding their identity and and coming to understand themselves? What is every option? And I think that is um, given so much liberty to clients that they, they have every option and they get to pick the most comfortable the most appropriate, the most accurate one for themselves. And to know that for some people, their gender can be fluid. So what they pick for now, in other words, how they articulate, how they experience their gender now, may not be the same 10 years from now, 20 years from now. Um, That as gendered beings we don't we're not necessarily static and we used to think that we were so that's what i'm saying is that so much has changed over the years in our understanding and that a lot of that has to do 
the good part of the internet because people have an opportunity from all over the world to talk to each other. Mm -hmm. And we as providers um, have much more opportunity to talk to each other. And many providers now are trans. So there's a much larger community and we can talk to each other. Mm -hmm. I love that. The first time I, I was introduced to a trans clinician, I was so excited to see that the, and, and this is maybe my perception, but that the, um, the, the doors were open mm -hmm. so much so that a trans person could feel comfortable and safe enough and empowered enough to go through acad academia as a trans person. Um, yes. <clears throat> because I, that's, that's hard. That's really hard. That's really hard. And as you saw, you know, many were stigmatized. I've heard such awful stories. And I sadly continue to. Mm -hmm. but, um, and also just get going to try to get health care at hospitals, for example, that, you know, trans people need to go break their arms, for example, like anybody else. Mm -hmm. And so, so many people avoid healthcare because of the way they're treated. And they, um, it's just, I don't know even how to say it, how would I feel when I, think about some of the stories I've heard, but how that people won't go, they just won't get care because they're more afraid of how they're going to, how providers are going to treat them than they are of living with whatever it is they have that needs medical treatment. Mm -hmm. It's a lot better. A and lot just better. Listening yeah. to you. And listening to you, that makes me feel so good. <laughs> yeah. I did not know that you were doing this work. I mean, I knew you were seeing many people. I didn't know that you were seeing a lot of trans people. So that mm -hmm. makes me happy. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's been yeah. it's been great. Um maybe kind of pivoting us a little bit, but what was it like watching trans clients go through the AIDS pandemic? in the 80s and the 90s that, yeah. had to have been, oh. that must have been really hard yeah i don't know if their experience was any worse than anybody going through it i what i recall a lot in san francisco actually more than uh, trans people was gay men going through it um so the person who was one of my best friends who i dedicated my dissertation to we lost mm. through the pandemic and he lost all his friends and by the time it came to bury his ashes it was only a few a few cis people left because everybody else was gone. And he was a provider, not, um, but not a trans provider. 
So what sticks out in my mind in San Francisco was just awful for everybody. And yeah, that's what I can say about it. For trans people, it's terrible. It was terrible. And oh, I do, I do want to say one thing that back in during the pandemic, trans people who were HIV positive, who wanted surgery, lower surgery, were not eligible. Mm-hmm. So the surgeons were too afraid of mm-hmm. getting the disease. And that's no longer the case. Mm. And I can't tell you when that shifted. It's been quite a while, but that was that they couldn't get their surgeries. Wow. Mm -hmm. You know, I I um, remember being five years old in 1988 and all the way up through the 90s and watching certain news reports of um, HIV and AIDS. And I remember just feeling so scared. but even mm. going through COVID-19 and quarantine and this pandemic and seeing the devastation that this caused and thinking about what that must have felt like in, in such a concentrated exposure to, to trauma and death. And I can imagine what that must have been like in San Francisco. It was horrible. I can imagine. It was horrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So many people. Well, I, what I was going to say is, I remember when the cocktail came out and people lived. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a death sentence anymore. And I still sure. have friends from back then who are alive and thriving, who we had already talked about and planned their funerals. Mm. And they're still with us. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. That's amazing. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This might um, th- I was five, five in '88. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you were alive when I started seeing people. <laughs> uh, yes, oh, I think this is why maybe in my mind, um, it feels so important the work that you've done, and, and maybe why it seems like I'm exaggerating, and maybe I am, but yeah. I always think of. I think of our work as almost participating with evolution. Oh, what a way to think of it. Keep going. Yeah, that if we can help people accept themselves and live in their truth, we create this ripple effect of healthy relationships for generations to come. And if those healthy relationships are shifting the way the brain organizes data and we're getting rid of trauma, then we help the human species evolve into people who are more capable of authenticity and love. And this is why I just, I hold you in such high regard because of the work that, that you've done. It's not only just your private practice and the single lives that you touch one hour at a time, but the work that you've done in WPATH and training providers to exponentially increase the, the freedom. I think it does work that way. I mean, with a lot of us, you know, I, I know that one of the things that matters to me so much is when someone will come back to see me after 10, 15 years, I've been in practice for so long and I see how they're thriving and I see what they're doing and they're telling me about how the world is different. 
and then they thank me. And I think that we all experience that, those of us who are clinicians and we've been doing the work as long as we have. But in this particular field, I do see more of that uh, thriving and, and, and telling me how the world has changed. Because sometimes I don't even notice it because I'm living it day to day to day. And I don't know, you know, somebody I've worked with 20 years ago, I'm not aware of what their life is like now. Because I remember what their life was like then, and then they come in and see me again, and it's really rewarding. This is wonderful work. I am wonderful. addicted to it. <laughs> I can't <laughs> no, stop. I can't. I just, just now, just before this session, I was in the living room talking to my partner, and he said, Ling, you're addicted to your work. <laughs> and, he had, and we've been together almost 40 years, and he's never said that to me. but. <laughs> he just said it. So uh, you're saying yeah. it. <laughs> about uh, yourself. I mean, I'm going to tell him. I'm going to say, yes. okay, guess yes. what? I'm not the only one. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, but it's for the sure. Work, the healthy addiction, right? I agree. Yeah. The best kind. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, one question for you, and this might sound like a very silly question, but I think there's okay. a lot of people who are are desperate and needing to hear the answer from someone with your professional gravitas. Okay. If if we have a cisgender father or cisgender mother looking at their trans kiddo, thinking they're just trying to get attention or they're identifying as trans because of peer pressure. Oh, how, yes. Yeah. Which is common. I hear that still even today. Yeah, how yeah. do you describe the transgender experience so that cisgender people can understand? I understand it. Well, oh, that's a really good question. So the first thing I do is in talking to parents is say to them you love your child I know you love your child and this is assuming they do but you know most parents do and they wouldn't be talking to me most likely if they didn't and I say listen to your child what is your child saying and then I ask them questions like in terms of knowing their child is their child a person in general who tells them about themselves in a way that they're not, they wouldn't believe them? Or is their child somebody who typically is a child that, that speaks the truth? Because what typically happens is a trans, say we're talking about a young person, has had these feelings for a long time before they tell their parents. They don't tell their parents right away. They might tell a friend or talk to a friend. They might tell no one. People live with this and learn about it, spend a lot of time on the internet talking to other people who are trans. I mean, they do their homework before they tell their parents. And they, once a parent is a starts thinking of, yeah, my, uh, my child is a person who typically doesn't 
make decisions, make bad decisions. My child is a person who is trustworthy. Um, they will, and, and well, most parents want their children to be happy. And sometimes they have to see that when a child starts living authentically, that they are so much happier. But I also explain that the standards of care, for example, when someone is transitioning, are relatively conservative. So the parent has time to adjust to this. It's not a new person, but a new expression, um, a new gendered expression that if they just, it's not going to happen overnight. They're not going to have surgery tomorrow. They're going to go through a process. And that oftentimes what will happen is the parents will come in and talk to me as well. It's a family transition. It's not just the child transitioning. And I think you're talking about children or are you talking about adults as well when you're asking your question? Um, because I think mostly children. Children. It's teenagers. Mm -hmm. teenagers. They think that there's um, a pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know. What do you think? What do you say? Because you, I'm sure you've thought of it. How do you oh, talk to parents? Absolutely. One of the things that I, um, it, it's it's common, sadly, but to have a trans adolescent um, who's uh, hiding in their room, who feels really sequestered, incredible mm -hmm. depression, anxiety right. through the roof, mm -hmm. and the the idea of even going to the grocery store where they might see someone from high school or um is just so crippling and to help parents identify why that fear is so crippling mm -hmm. to really articulate the experience of saying uh, the outward experience of feeling seen in a gendered body that doesn't match the gendered knowing of the person mm -hmm. is so painfully uncomfortable. And yes. I think that for a lot of parents is the, the beginning step to differentiate the, the physical expression of the given body versus how they know themselves internally mm -hmm. and what they, they know is true. Um, I think it's, uh, it's, it's quite heavy when the light bulb goes off yes. to identify the pain that that child or teen or even adult has been carrying Mm -hmm. And parents, cisgender parents, gay parents, queer parents, they want their children to be happy. <laughs> and it's so painful to watch a child be miserable, mm -hmm. to hide in their room, as you're saying. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it takes time. Mm -hmm. But again, it's listen to the child. Mm -hmm. Right. I think there's a lot of necessary empathy that needs to serious, true um, empathy of the emotional experience of what that's like that I think a lot of parents need to cultivate over time. And it's difficult. Cisgender people have a, it's difficult to imagine what it's like. It's still even 
difficult for me. I believe it. And that's the other thing that I learned from the very beginning is to believe the other person. Mm-hmm. Why not? Absolutely. You know, they know themselves better than I'll ever know them. Mm-hmm. And another thing that many trans people have said to me over the years, why would anyone go through this if they didn't have to? I mean, oh, sure. why would they? Absolutely. Why would you go through all this? Being stigmatized, having all these surgeries, you just wouldn't do it unless you needed to. And if you work as a clinician, you learn to believe other people. Mm-hmm. I mean, you should learn it anyway, but as a clinician, mm-hmm. you really learn it. Mm-hmm. That that's our job is to mirror people and to accept them for who they are, to see them as they see themselves, mm-hmm. to do our very best to understand them. Mm-hmm. That understanding is so healing. And so many times we have the opportunity to be with people who say to us, you're the very first person I've ever told. You're the very first person who's ever seen me as I see myself. And that is, you know, that means so much. And I say things like that to parents, you know. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, thank you for your time. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah. I have anything for you. I'm just, I, well, I do. I, sure. Can I say something to you? Absolutely. <laughs> so one, I'm thrilled to hear that something I said, and this is an example of what happens a lot to us as clinicians, that I had an impact on you many years ago. Mm-hmm. And I have to say the work that you're doing and what the kind of way you put into the words, your genuine empathy and caring and what you've told me earlier today of how your career has grown and you know, the clinic has grown. I mean, it's just wonderful. I so want to know what that young and angry trans woman looked like. Even though her confidentiality is protected, I want to give her a name so that all of us can remember what her vulnerability did for the trans community. She gave Dr. Fraser the ability to lend her mind and her wisdom and her career to helping create an innovative training manual, something that was so avant-garde that would affect the way that clinicians for generations would understand and be able to listen to and help people in the trans community who need it. As I mentioned, every day I use the wisdom of Dr. Fraser in my office. She would say, Isaac, I want you to leave every option on the table for your clients. She taught me to let authenticity of the LGBTQ plus client have its space, its time, its respect, and its own life. Unbeknownst to her, she wasn't teaching a clinician how to do their job better. She was teaching me how to respect and embrace my own gender fluidity as well. I was, at the time, afraid of the gender identity I might find if I dug deep enough. 
Gender identity is a major facet of not only our internal self-perception, but also our day-to-day reality. It's not just something we admit to people, but a way of being noticed and referred to in the world. I once had a trans client who was nearing the end of their transition who sat on my couch with serious despair. With a quivering lip, they told me that they still felt like a woman dressed in man's clothing. Sadly, this is not an uncommon sentiment. Let me say, genetics express themselves as either XY or XX very early in the embryo's process. Nearly six weeks later, an androgen bathing trains the brain how to understand and refer to itself as either gender non-binary, male, female, or somewhere along the spectrum. Again, at week 12, another androgen bathing comes to either add another dose a booster of sorts, and help solidify the way the brain might understand itself. This self-conception is established during a completely different time than when the genes code the physical body as either intersex, female, or male. The same thing is true for sexual orientation. It is established at an entirely different time than the genetics of our bodies. For me, this piece of research was life-changing. I no longer had to shame myself for what happened to me, quote-unquote, or what I chose to become. We have the evidence that we are literally biologically born along the LGBTQ spectrum. So, my trans siblings, let your truth be your truth. Be authentic, be honest, and be angry. You never know your story might shift history. A massive thank you to Dr. Frazier, not only for her time given to this episode, but to all the time spent making sure trans folks across the world are being cared for in the most appropriate and safe ways. Dr. Frazier, may your warmth continue to affect the world. Until next time. Queer Relationships is a podcast sponsored by I Am Clinic, a counseling practice devoted to the LGBTQ plus community with in-person and virtual counseling options available. I Am Clinic, create the love lives and relationships you crave. Find us online on Instagram at LGBTQ underscore therapy and Facebook at I Am Clinic. That's I-A-M Clinic.